Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's late uh, for one reason or other. It's 10 p.m. in San Francisco, the evening of um, June 24th, 2021. The reason I'm doing this late, actually, is because my guest is in Singapore. So this was a good time to catch him. Lunchtime Singapore uh, on June 25th, 2021. Uh, we're going to talk COVID. We're going to talk China and Asia. I just want to bring you up to date with some of the news of today. Uh, I was looking at the map of the coronavirus in the United States. It looks pretty good. Uh, actually, it looks extremely good. Uh, new reported cases are sliding dramatically. Um, and uh, Joseph Biden is very proud to say that there are 300 million shots and 150 days being given out. Uh, not quite where he wants to be by uh, July 4th, but nonetheless pretty impressive. And in some ways, where I am, San Francisco, it's becoming Singapore. Um, the state is strong and authoritative, and they're requiring city workers to be vaccinated. Those who don't could be fired. In my view, those who don't should be fired. If you choose not to be vaccinated, you probably shouldn't work for the government. 15 months is an awful long time in world politics. 15 months ago, I had the Singapore-based writer, political analyst, um, polemicist, Kishore uh, Mabubani on the show, uh, talking about, in his words, the catastrophic response to the crisis in the United States. I think in some way, when we, Kishore and I, last talked in April last year, uh, this catastrophic um, response very much fitted in uh, to, 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 Mabubani, uh, to Kishore's uh, polemic about uh, China and the West and the rise of China and the decline of the West, particularly in the United States. So I thought it'd be really interesting to catch the great Kishore uh, Mabubani again. Uh, in my original um, lower third, I left out the question mark in his book as China won. He's not so sure, although I get the sense he probably thinks it has. Uh, Kishore, uh, 15 months uh, to, 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 uh, to uh, remix Harold Wilson's famous phrase about politics. 15 months is a long time in world politics, isn't it? Yes, definitely. And a lot has changed in the last 15 months. Trump is gone. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, uh, I don't think um, I don't think that's news, Kishore. Let's uh, I don't want to put your 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 feet to the fire, Keyshaw. But when you did come on the show uh, last year, you weren't alone, but you were pretty articulate and in some ways um, controversial in your analysis of the catastrophic response to the crisis. Do you still stick to that? Uh, is there logic now to the US or was it just a reflection of Trump's incompetence and the relative competence of the new regime? Well, you know, um, I guess the best way for me to speak to you is to be very frank. and uh, No, that's it. why you're on the show, Kishore. Yes. 
Your uh, middle name is Frank. At the end of the day, let me just give you one statistic. Uh, if the United States had the same number of death rate per million as China, instead of having over 600,000 deaths, it would have had 1,000. Now, 600,000 lives have been lost in the United States due to COVID-19. And frankly, a lot of those lives could have been saved. And there was ample warning between January and I would say April when we spoke last time that COVID-19 was coming to the United States. Uh, was pretty obvious. All mm -hmm. kinds of measures should have, people should have got ready and said, okay, it's coming. Let's start pre preparing what we need, uh, personal protection equipment, uh, you know, hospitals, prepare lockdowns, you know, all those things that could have been done were not done. And, and that's, where that, that's the tragedy, okay? And of course, since I would completely agree with you that since Joe Biden has come, things have improved dramatically in the United States and the whole world is cheering and very happy that things have got better uh, in the United States. Kishore, let me come back to your um point of this this statistical comparison between the united states and china Re repeat what you said um about uh, getting the deaths down from 600,000 to 1,000 well if, you know china had i think about 5,000 deaths uh, out of a population of 1.4 billion people do you trust the chinese numbers should we trust the chinese numbers uh, yes, uh, I think there are enough uh, scientists going in and out of China. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, you know, the, there was a time when there was a major crash between two, two fast trains in China and the local authorities tried to bury the evidence, you know, tried to bury the broken trains as quickly as possible but the Chinese social media got took pictures and it went viral. So if lots of people are dying in China, they would reach the social media in one way or another. But all the evidence shows uh, that the China did successfully uh, thwart the spread of COVID-19 and saved a lot of lives. And by the way, the, the, uh, to, to put it the other way, if China had had the same number of loss of lives Per million as United States, uh, you would have lost um, roughly 2.4 million people instead of 5,000 people. So China, in that sense, may have saved the lives of 2.4 million people. What has the COVID um, Kishore taught us about the resilience of the Chinese model versus the American model? As I said uh, in the introduction, uh, your last book has China won, suggests that the Chinese model might be more viable in the 21st century than the West and particularly the American model. Are you more convinced about your thesis um, post-COVID? By the way, the answer to the question, has China won, is not yes. Uh, it's actually no, but more accurately, not yet. And... Uh, 
it, the China model, by the way, cannot be exported to any country outside China. And the Chinese have no desire whatsoever to, to share or export the Chinese model to anyone. So the China model works very well for China because they have a 4,000 year uh, political culture. And, as, and the one lesson the Chinese have learned after 4,000 years, and you know, the Chinese said, you know, have gone up and down, up and down, gosh, I don't know how many times. They've learned that China, this society of 1.4 billion people does best when it has very strong central government, as it does today, by the way. And it's important to emphasize a key fact, okay? The Chinese people have experienced a greater improvement in their standard of living in the past 40 years. They've improved more in the past 40 years than they have in 4,000 years of Chinese history. So from the point of view of the Chinese people, the past 40 years have been the best 40 years in 4,000 years. And that's why, you know, as you know, a Harvard Kennedy School study has documented how support for the Chinese government has gone up from 86% in 2003 to 93% in 2016. And so, but the Chinese model works for China. The, you, it doesn't apply to any other country. You know, I'm Indian, I'm ethnically Indian. India could not possibly apply the China model. So, and the Chinese are not even trying to export the China model. They say, please, you know, this is good enough for us. You choose your form of government. We respect your form of government. Foreign policy, uh, the Foreign Affairs magazine um, has uh, a piece actually today, Xi's Gamble, the race to consolidate power and uh, stave off disaster in China. The Economist uh, this week also has its cover story about the struggle for the Chinese Communist Party to maintain its power. You're a China watcher, Kishore. You're in Singapore. You're perched off the mainland. What's your reading of the situation there right now? Well, I mean, I, I would certainly uh, have a lot of respect for the economists. I have a lot of respect for Jude Donchett. I think you interviewed him on your show, if I remember correctly. Yes. Uh, and uh, I, I, I respect their opinions. But at the same time, it's becoming increasingly clear to me that the, uh, the Anglo-Saxon media doesn't understand China at all. Because, and, and primarily because they apply the lenses uh, of what you call the Anglo-Saxon cultural universe and try to apply it uh, to China. And it doesn't work. It, in, and, and the point of view is that from the point of view of the Chinese people, you know, after they've had the best 40 years in 4,000 years of Chinese history, why would they want to change the government, right? In fact, the next 40 years could see even more spectacular improvements uh, in the standard of living of the Chinese people. And, you know, the, the, and when, when, when all this Anglo-Saxon media reporting that the Chinese Communist Party uh, is, may collapse, uh, may disappear, I mean, of course, it, it might happen. I may be proven completely wrong. But nobody in, Asia, in East Asia that I know is betting anytime soon that the Chinese Communist Party is going to collapse. In fact, the general assumption is that 
this Chinese government, this form of Chinese government may even last another hundred years. And so the region is adapting and adjusting to that new reality. And when you say the, the, the new form of government, uh, the, the, the Chinese model, uh, you're talking about a centralized authoritarian system increasingly built on digital controls. Is that fair? With a, a centralized economic system built on the free market. Well, I think this is, ex you, I must say, I'm glad you raised that question, Andrew, because your, your very question suggests that there is a white world, you know, not, not white in the racist sense, sorry, white, black and white in the sense of good and bad. And so a sort of white universe of liberal democratic societies and a black universe of dark authoritarian societies. There's a sort of a, a binary uh, perception here. And China doesn't fall either in the white category or in the black category. And China is uh, as a mixture of different shades of gray. And so, for example, if you, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you assume that it is an authoritarian society that is built on surveillance, actually, the, the Chinese people have seen an explosion of personal freedoms of a kind they haven't experienced in 4,000 years. You know, and I'll give you simple examples. When I first went to China in 1980, the Chinese people couldn't choose where to live, where to work, what to wear, where to study. But now they can do all those things. And in 2019, I keep emphasizing this, 130 million Chinese left China freely and went back to China freely. By the way, there's an echo I'm hearing. Yeah, we have some, uh, it must be the Chinese. I'm joking. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, it sounds fine, Kishore. Um, there was some numbers that came out from the... Um, from, from ranking world economies or what, what, um, uh, last week. Um, and it was interesting that I, I, I think what you're saying makes some sense. Although in these latest rankings, uh, number one was in terms of world competitiveness. Sweden was number one, Switzerland two, Denmark was three. Um, and China was down at 16. It had actually fallen. Um, should we take these kinds of studies seriously? Can China um, re continue to reinvent itself in competitive terms in the 21st century? Well, I mean, if it is true that China was a dark authoritarian society suppressing the freedom of the Chinese people, if people believe that, then clearly China cannot succeed. It will fail. It will definitely fail. So if China continues to succeed, it does show that from the point of view of the Chinese people, including, by the way, the very young Chinese people, they see a great promise ahead. They see boundless possibilities. In fact, the Chinese people are now among the most optimistic people. Uh, Is there any dissent, Kishore, in China? particularly sure. amongst minorities. We hear a lot in the West about sure. the relationship 
with Muslim minorities. Um, sure. There's obviously the Hong Kong issue. You're in Singapore. I'm not sure that many people in Singapore would like to, uh, to become part of the Chinese state. Um, what's your reading of the level of political dissent in China? Well, I mean, uh, that's also a very interesting uh, phrase, uh, uh, dissent. Uh, uh, the, the, Chinese, the Chinese political system is not as rigid and doctrinaire as people see it to be. The system has various forms of, how do you call it, flexibility built into it in a way that it listens to where there is unhappiness uh, within China, and then it tries to deal with it. And it, uh, by the way, it doesn't necessarily deal with it by just suppressing and beating up people incidentally. It does change uh, and adapt. And of course, you know, you, I don't know, you've, I've seen some study, I can't remember exactly where, that you know, China has about 50 to 60,000 protests a year out of a population of 1.4 billion. That's not a very large number. But many of these protests are protests against local authorities trying to gain attention of the central authorities to say, hey, please come and take care of us. We are having some problems here. And that's how they get uh, uh, noticed. And, and, and so that it, 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 the, a political system like China's cannot just survive on suppressing people. It has to win over the support of the people and enjoy a very high degree of support and, and legitimacy. Why do you think China then, if, if, we, if we accept your argument, hmm. Kishore, and we've had other people on the show who I think would strongly disagree, but if we accept your argument, why is China so misrepresented in the West? Is it because there's essentially a new Cold War? Is it racism? Is it cultural bias? Is it the legacy of colonialism and imperialism? Or we, do most of us simply not get China? Well, I mean, the West, you know, the key point of my book has the West lost it, is that the West has gone through an unusual period of 200 years of world domination of, world, of domination of world history. I, I say it's an unusual period because in the year one to the year 1820, for 1800 out of the last 2000 years, the, the two largest economies were always those of China and India. And it's only in the last 200 years that Europe took off and, and, and North America took off. So the West has been so dominant for, for 200 years it's psychologically very difficult for the West to accept, for example, that within 10 years, China's economy will be bigger than the United States. And the, the capacity of the West to dominate the world will clearly diminish. And you know, I want to give one important statistic that everyone in your show should know by heart. Only 12% of the world's population lives in the West. 88% lives outside the West. And most of this 88%, I can tell you, are in one way or another adjusting uh, to the rise of China in a way that the West is not doing so. And, and so I'm trying to share with you how the world is seen through the eyes of 88% of the world. Let's talk a little bit about Joe Biden. Uh, he recently said his foreign policy aims to win the 21st century. He seems in many ways to be nostalgic for a different age. Uh, his approach to China, for example, 
as he's going back to ideals of democracy, his administration is supposed now to be barring imports of solar panels linked to forced labor in China's Xinjiang uh, region. Um, how seriously is Biden being taken um, in China and how seriously do you take him? Is he a nostalgist? Is he someone who, who actually understands the challenges of the 21st century? Well, I want to emphasize that I was very, very happy when Biden won the election. <laughs> I mean, Trump was a disaster. Okay, let's be very clear about that. And I think most of, as you know, most of the world cheered when Joe Biden won the elections. And every, all of us won Biden to succeed. Because the nightmare scenario that I feel is going to happen is that in the year 2024, let's say if you have a contest between uh, Vice President Kamala Harris and Donald Trump in 2024, the chances of Donald Trump winning are very high. Let's be very clear about that. And, you know, the United States is the only major developed country where the average income of the bottom 50% has gone down over a 30-year period, creating what Angus Deaton, the Nobel laureate, has called, you know, a sea of despair among the white working class. Yeah, and so, Deaton's been on the show, so yeah, absolutely. Yes, so if, if Joe Biden helps to improve the livelihood of the bottom 50% and makes America a much happier society than it has been, than the one that Angus Deaton portrays in his book, That's of Despair, then it's good for America, it's good for the world, and we will cheer him on. We want him to succeed. But vis-a-vis -vis China, unfortunately, his hands are tied. You know, as you know, there's a rock-solid anti-China consensus in, in, in Washington, D.C. And in this contest between Biden and Xi Jinping, Biden has a huge competitive disadvantage because the only thing he's focusing on is the midterm elections in November 2022. So he has no flexibility. For example, the most sensible thing he could do to revive the American economy is to remove all tariffs and sanctions on China because they haven't worked, okay? And Joe Biden himself said in 2019 that these tariffs and sanctions are not working. They're hurting the American workers, American consumers, American farmers. And so he should reverse those, uh, those tariffs and sanctions, but he cannot do so because in, in the United States has become has such a toxic anti-China atmosphere, he can't do sensible things. And, and the net result of it, by the way, is that China's economy is therefore becoming stronger. Now, let me give you one more statistic, which I think most Americans should be aware of. In the year 2009, uh, the retail market of China was $1.8 trillion. And United States was $4 trillion in 2009, more than double that of China's. You fast forward to 2019, and 2019 is a significant year because this is two years after Trump's trade war, right? He's been beating up China. And guess what? After two years of Trump's trade war, China's retail goods market goes up from $1.8 trillion to $6 trillion, three times. And United States goes from four trillion to one five point five trillion, and it's now smaller than China's. So the trade war didn't hurt China. And you know, the, the most logical, sensible thing to do is that if you try something and it doesn't work, huh, uh, you stop doing it. In fact, Einstein was the one who said once, you know, what is it? It's the height of stupidity to do the same thing and expect different results, <laughs> you know.
So I would say this is where the United States should, seriously should read my book and understand they can come up with a much more intelligent, thoughtful strategy. Yeah, everyone yeah. needs to read your book, uh, Kishore. Has China won? Some of the other headlines today are coming out of Taiwan, warnings about an imminent war between China and the United States. Are you fearful of this in, in the history of these great power conflicts and rivalries? Usually they, they turn on some sort of uh, interstate violence. Does that worry you? Well, I would say the prospects of war between China and United States overall are very low because in a nuclear war, you don't have a winner or a loser. You have a loser and a loser. You know, 15 to 20 cities in the United States would disappear at least in a nuclear war. Okay, let's be very clear about that. This is not a trivial thing we are discussing. We are talking about uh, losing uh, millions and millions of lives. Okay, so let's, let's be clear. Let's not get to the war between U.S. and China. But the one thing that can trigger a war between U.S. and China is Taiwan. And as you know, next month, uh, we, are we are celebrating, marking the 50th anniversary of Kissinger's famous visit to China in July 1971. And you know, all the records show that in the discussions between uh, Kissinger and Zhou Enlai in 1971, Kissinger raised a whole wide range of issues, Vietnam War, Middle East, Japan, everything. Zhou Enlai only raised one issue, Taiwan. So from the point of view of the Chinese, there are red lines on Taiwan. So if Taiwan strive, tries to become independent, China will declare war. And let's be very clear about that. We should have absolutely no doubt about that. Because you know, I've also created a MOOC course, you know, multi-massive open online course, pointing out that from the point of view of the Chinese, the most painful thing was the century of humiliation from 1842 to 1949. And Taiwan is the last living symbol of this century of humiliation and no Chinese leader can allow Taiwan to secede. Okay, so the best thing we can do with Taiwan is don't disrupt the status quo. Just let the status quo continue and, and then there'll be peace uh, across the Taiwan Straits. Kishore, uh, yeah. one person who didn't maintain the status quo was Donald Trump. The news today is that apparently, at least according to the Washington Post or um, a new book out on Trump, uh, he came quite close to dying. How, how, how symbolic is Trump in terms of American early 21st century history? Is he an aberration? He's obviously in a rather absurd, objectionable character, as you've already suggested. But how are we to make sense of Trump in the broader context of early 21st century America? Well, I would say it's a huge mistake uh, to focus on Donald Trump, the man, and not to focus on the 74 to 75 million people who voted for Donald Trump in 2020. I think we must listen. We must we must talk to these 74, 75 million Americans and try to understand why did they vote for Trump? And in my view, this was a cry in some ways from, from the bottom, the, from, the, from the white working classes that we spoke about earlier, the, who are suffering from a sea of despair, as Angus Deaton documented. For, 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 for them, it was what they called a cri de cur. You know, you're not listening to us. You're not, you're not paying attention to our needs. So let's, 
take care of the white working classes in America. Let's improve their livelihood to make sure that Trump doesn't come back. And of course, at the other spectrum, you, it's the other spectrum, which is the thing that really shocked me. Uh, and a friend of mine in New York, you know, had a private chat with me and he said to me, Kishore, I studied in Yale. I studied in Harvard. I thought my classmates shared my values. But when they became billionaires, they decided that getting Trump to cut their taxes was more important than taking care of the values of America. So it's this rich billionaires and the white working classes in distress that have voted in Trump. So let's, let's focus on those who voted for Trump and, and not focus on Trump, the men. The, dear, the news today, Kishore, as you know, is that Biden has claimed at least a bipartisan will, uh, deal win with his new deal, his almost trillion dollar deal on infrastructure. Um, is that the beginning, do you think, of Biden actually catering to that white working class, of recognizing the pain in America, the pain that Angus Deaton and so many others write about? Well, I hope so. I mean, I, I keep emphasizing the world wants Biden to succeed. <laughs> I mean, I want to emphasize that over and over. Even because, in Beijing, do you think that the uh, the yeah, Chinese I, want him to succeed? I, I think China would be far happier to deal with a confident, secure United States of America, not the insecure and troubled America that you have today. So for example, in the past, when Richard Nixon, as you know, went to China uh, in 1972, he could do so. And at, at that time, by the way, uh, China had been demonized in the American body politic for 20 years, right? And this, and, and they had fought, to, the, the, the Chinese and American soldiers killed each other in the Korean War in 1950-53. Despite all that, Richard Nixon could go to China because he was a strong, self-confident America. Today, no American president, even Joe Biden, dares. You know, if he tried to, let's say, hey, this is the 50th anniversary of Kissinger's visit, let's go and knock on the door and visit Beijing again, he'll be crucified in America. And, 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 and the insecurity of Americans, I think contributes to this US-China tension because a confident, strong, self-confident America would say, okay, China, you keep on growing. It doesn't matter. I'm still a better society. But the fact that the United States is trying to launch this contest against China shows how insecure it is. And, and it's sad because at the end of the day, the United States has to make a strategic choice within its primacy in the global system and taking care of its people. And I argue in my book that, you should, that America, America should take care of its own people and push aside primacy. Kishore, it's always wonderful to talk to you because you're not shy to express yourself. You're talking to us from Singapore, which offers another model for 21st century politics. The, uh, the smart city, a mix of, of, of very successful economic development and, and technological innovation. Uh, the headlines out of Singapore today are pretty good, uh, as always it seems in Singapore. Uh, they're expanding their vaccination campaigns and they're getting ready to live with COVID, recognizing that it's a reality. Uh, but Singapore is one of the models for managing COVID and managing economic development in the early 21st century. Shouldn't we be focusing, finally, uh, Kishore, rather than 
China shouldn't, and I, and I know you've already said this, but shouldn't Singapore be a model for developing countries rather than China? Well, Singapore, of course, is for a start very tiny, as you know, very very small. It's one fifth the size of Rhode Island, but nonetheless, you know, on on when Singapore turned fifty in twenty fifteen, when it turned five zero. I wrote an article saying that in some ways Singapore has been the most successful society ever in human history. And what do I mean by that? Uh, Singapore has improved the standard of its living, the standard of living of its people, faster and more comprehensively than any society has ever in human history. And no one has matched Singapore's record so far. Of course, it's not just about economic development. Okay. I mean, when I grew up in Singapore, our per capita income was the same as Ghana in Africa. When I was six years old, I was put in a special feeding program because I was technically uh, undernourished. Uh, I had no flush toilet in my house till I was 13. So I grew and, and I had gangsters uh, cutting up each other with beer bottles within 10 feet of my eyes in, in the Singapore that I grew up with. So I grew up in a typical third world poor underdeveloped Singapore. And today, Singapore is one of the most successful societies in the world. So I've traveled the journey from the very bottom to the, in a sense, to the very top. And so this is a journey that Singapore has taken. And frankly, Singapore would be very happy if other countries came and copied from Singapore because Singapore copied from the rest of the world. Your next book, uh, Kishore, not that I need to tell you, should be uh, uh, has has Singapore won, and we won't have a question mark there, uh, as opposed to your China book. Uh, as always, it's a real honor and a privilege, and uh, a lot of fun to talk to you. You're not shy. You've uh, your views on China, I think, are quite controversial, but in their own way, reasonably convincing and interesting. Uh, Kishore. Uh, Mabubani, the author of as Has China Won, many other books. They're all essential reading, I think. Has the West Lost It as well? Many other books. Uh, we'll have you again on the show. I hope it won't be another 15 months, maybe next year, Kishore, to see the state of the world, the state of China, Taiwan, Singapore, the United yeah. States. Real honor. Keep well. Keep thinking. Thank you. Keep the, 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 the paperback edition of my book is coming out next year, so I'll be coming to... Uh, the US. <laughs> okay, well, I'll see you then. Thank you so much, Kishore. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.